matter is, we don't live in a very safe world anymore. But there is still a place that the lion's wealth have not trodden upon and the vulture's eye has never seen. It's a place lifted up in the wilderness where you can see the dangers before they can get to you. It's called a highway of holiness. It's the king's highway. I'm glad to be walking on the king's highway tonight. I'm glad that it doesn't matter what society decides or culture uh, 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 morphs into. Praise God. Vultures don't live there because there's nothing dead there to eat. The lions don't pray there because there's nothing that can be taken as a prey. I want to tell you the house of God is still a safe place. You say, oh, Brother Howington, I don't know if I believe that or not. Well, let me say it like this. It's safer than any place you can be otherwise. And I could, I could wax eloquent or funny or whatever right now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refrain because I don't want anybody to think pastor's in bad taste tonight. Amen. But I know, I know some places that the devil's never going to catch me, though. I do know some places he, he, won't, he won't get me there because, he won't get, because I won't be there. You know, you know if, you, if you got some parameters in your life, there are certain places that you don't ever have to worry about the devil catching you there if you've already decided, I won't, go, I won't be going there. Can I, whew, the rapture will not catch me laying out sunbathing on a beach full of half-naked people. I'm sure of that. Well, I better preach or I'm going to start wandering here. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And I want to preach to you tonight about the faith that was once delivered. Amen. Would you lay your Bibles down? Amen. Turn around to somebody there nearby and say, my faith's not blind. If you're going to help me tonight, I want you to clap your hands to the Lord. Go ahead and, and open your mouths while you do it and give him, a, give him a praise. Praise God. Praise God. I want to give this young, uh, I want to give everybody that were here tonight a word, but this is especially for the young people. As I was praying tonight and, and people began to file into the prayer room, the Lord said to tell you that you were a far more important asset than you ever realized. Don't let anything belittle you. Don't let anything undermine your confidence in Jesus Christ that you can be something great and grand and glorious. And you can be used. 
And you can, do, you can walk humbly before God and be mighty before men. My God. My God. I'm feeling my help tonight. Hallelujah. Praise God. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. Amen. Did you tell somebody my faith's not blind? There is a saying in our culture that says uh, that uh, sometimes people just take the plunge and they have no justification other than they're just, they just stepped out on blind faith. Anybody ever heard that? I know the elders of my generation, that was a common saying. They just got out there in blind faith. They didn't know what was going to... Can I tell you something tonight? Some would try to tell us in this great apostolic church that to believe this gospel is to walk blindly disconnected from reality and that the things that, that uh, we believe are so discombobulated uh, uh, and misaligned uh, with the reality of the culture and the world we live in uh, that, that we must be walking in blind faith. Can I tell you tonight, I want the enemy to know something, my faith is not blind tonight. But this life that the New Testament apostolic church is living is anything but a walk in the dark, folks. In fact, it is just the diametrically opposite of that. This is rather walking in fellowship with the Almighty God. For the Scripture says that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we will have fellowship with Him and the blood of Jesus Christ will cover our sins. Can I tell you tonight, I'm walking in light and I'm covered in blood. Amen. The cloud overshadows midday and the fire warms me at night and whether it's day or night whether it's morning noon or night whether it's time of prosperity or tribulation I have a walk with God and I'm not in the dark and I'm not blindly following this thing tonight hallelujah hallelujah I greet you tonight in the great name of Jesus I have about three hours worth of preaching but I'm not going to keep you nearly that long if somebody will tell me when I've been going about 30 or 40 minutes if y'all let me up 40 minutes amen then I'll know when to start trying to quit amen I've been praying over this message for since, since Monday. I've prayed over it for three days now. And the thing about praying over a message for three days, and I spent today in prayer. I spent most of, uh, I spent about five or six hours today in prayer. And I'm not saying that so that you'll pat me on the back. It's just I felt compelled that there's something happening in the apostolic church. There is something happening to people that recognize that what we have is very precious and what we have is very relevant, even though the world would try to relegate us to insignificance and unimportance and try to tell us uh, that this is something that's antiquated and uh, it's something uh, that needs to be put on the shelf. Uh, amen. But I'm going to tell you what I believe. Uh, I believe that this gospel is not going to uh, be covered with rust nor covered with dust uh, in this generation. Uh, I believe that there's going to be somebody who's going to take it out, going to dust it off, going to sharpen it up uh, and going to use it uh, for the purpose uh, Amen. that it was intended to. Uh, this word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide asunder to the very joints and marrow and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. If we get this in our heart right, we can't help but get it in our flesh right. If we get it in our flesh right, we'll walk right. We'll talk right. We'll live right. We'll do right. We'll love like we're supposed to love. We'll live like we're supposed to live. We'll give like we're supposed to give. Come on, somebody. Help the pastor tonight. Help the bishop tonight. Would you do that? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Woo! 
This, this sermon has morphed into about three or four different manifestations in the last three days. <laughs> Amen. And I hope that I can uh, get it all out tonight or at least enough of it to leave you with some semblance of cogent thought. Amen. I uh, love to all of you. There is a, and I need probably just uh, uh, 10 seconds to briefly explain something to you. I talked with Pastor about it this week. I talked with uh, 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 one of my bishops uh, this week uh, and, and I told him that something's happening to me. There's something going on. Uh, and, and we talked about it. And there's a newfound liberty. When I get in that prayer room, I feel something. It feels like I'm a brand new convert again. It feels like I'm that 25-year-old boy again that was just discovering the revelation of some things. And it's got me so excited. Amen. I don't ever want to lose my passion. I don't ever want to lose my freshness. I don't ever want to lose my zeal. I might have a step that's slower than it used to be. I might have a crop of hair that's thinner and grayer than it used used to be but there's something inside of me that's timeless and undying and I can't help but tell you tonight I feel the help of the Lord I feel the revelation of his glory I feel the unction of his power in this place hallelujah I love each and every one of you amen and the changes you see amen in me or the changes that you perceive you say he just stands up there and just worships and he won't say anything and he just stands there and looks I'm telling you there's something magnificent that is unfolding in the spirit world. You need to be sure you pray over the leadership of this house. Amen. Not only me, but your, but your pastor and uh, your outreach uh, pastor and your kids pastor and your youth pastor. Amen. And your Sunday school and all of the ministries of this house because God is about to do something in this last hour. Amen. He's going to find some people uh, that are willing to contend for the faith uh, which was once delivered. And if it was ever once delivered, it's still the will of God that it be delivered. Woo! Somebody ought to shout hallelujah. Somebody ought to shout yes Lord. Praise God. If you can stand it, you can be seated. Two men looked out of prison bars. One saw mud and the other saw stars. It always depends upon what you're looking at as to what you're going to see. I'm telling you, I'm not looking around at the degradation, the denigration, the desperation, the frustration, the exasperation that's in my society and my culture. I see a world that has shifted out from under me, but the world that I'm looking forward to is as rock solid as it ever shall be, ever has been, and ever will be. Woo! My God. We are admonished in the word of God to never lose sight of the idea that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are still laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We are admonished to keep our eye on the prize, to lift up our eyes unto the hills from whence cometh our help, for our help comes from the Lord, to let our conversations, that is not just words, but associations, ideas, thoughts, attitudes, philosophies, let your conversations be in heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ resides. I'm going to tell you, if you'll keep your mind on Jesus, we used to sing one that said, I woke up this morning with my mind just stayed on Jesus hallelujah you know what if you wake up with him on your mind you go through the day with him on your mind you go to bed with him on your mind when he comes back you'll be ready to meet him the challenge for the church in this hour 
and not just now, but in every era, has always been to remember that we are humanity. Would you know some of y'all help me here? We are humanity that it has been infused with deity. The Holy Ghost, the earnest of our inheritance in this life and that which pertains to his divine nature has been infused into us in a measure. Amen. And the word promises it to be our full measure of inheritance after this life is finished. What do you mean, Brother Howington? Oh, yes, we must never lose sight of the fact that one day we shall awake in his likeness and we will be like him because the Bible says in that day, when that day occurs, when we awake in his likeness, we shall see him as he is. We look through a glass darkly and we still see a healer. We look through a glass darkly and we still see a lame man walk. We look through the glass darkly and we see the resurrection of the dead and we see demons cast out and we see miracles and signs and wonders can I tell you that what I am living for is the day when that's just the prelude when that's just the, the when that's just the prelude and the lead up on one of these days I'm going to open my eyes and I'm going to see him high and lifted up full of glory oh somebody help me tonight Woo! my God And it is the hope of that glorious transformation, that wondrous revelation initiated by the resurrection. Amen. It should always be the idea that we are going to be changed, Pastor, that sustains us, keeps us always looking at the world around us with a right philosophy. Don't get too caught up. Don't get too discouraged. Don't get too enamored. Don't fall in love with it and don't hate it because it's, not temp- it's nothing but temporary. Always look at the world with the right philosophy. And always looking, expecting everything to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Just like the book said it was. It doesn't make any difference what it looks like. It is the Father's good will to give. The Bible says it's His good pleasure to give the kingdom to His children. Do you think that the God that filled us with the Holy Ghost and called us out of every kind of ism and schism and out of darkness and barrooms and out of uh, uh, promiscuity and fornication and drug abuse and, and false doctrine and, and uh, pagan religiosity, do you think that God is not going to give us the kingdom he promised? Some may be thinking, well, Brother Harrington, you're a philosopher and an idealist and I'm just not one of those kind of people. Amen. I am an idealist. I will admit it. And I am, to what degree it might be, I might be the philosopher emeritus of Cornfield County, but I am a philosopher. Because I have a philosophy that guides how I choose to live. I'm not going to be tossed by the winds of doctrine. I'm not going to have everything that comes along change my opinion. I'm not going to be unstable, Pastor. You can wake me 
up in the middle of the night and it's still Jesus' name baptism. It's still holiness unto the Lord, separation from the world. It's still speaking in other tongues as the evidence of the infilling of the Holy Ghost. It's still repentance. It's still water baptism in Jesus' name. For you see, to be an idealist is to believe that the word has some absolutes attached to it. Absolute as to the identity and the sovereignty of the God we serve. Absolute as to the doctrine which determines what it takes to be saved. Absolutes with regard to how we will live our lives, conduct ourselves, how we will appear and what our perspectives about culture and society will be. To be an idealist is to believe that even though our humanity may not always achieve perfection, the ideal is that God has a perfection that that we are supposed to be working toward. We should still embrace the life view and philosophy that perfection is still right and that it should always be the goal that we strive to achieve and accomplish. The challenge for us as Christians and Christian philosophers is this. While our eyes are focused upon the stars, that we be careful that we don't fall in a hole. I've had people tell me, well, I know some people that's so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. Well, chances are they were no earthly good before they started trying to be heavenly minded. But the challenge is that while my eyes are on heavenly things, I've got to remember something tonight. Even though I'm looking toward Jesus and I'm looking toward the author and the finisher of my help and I'm looking toward that day when the clouds roll back and I see him in all of his splendor and glory, my feet are still in the earth. And your feet are still in the earth. My feet are still attached to terra firma no matter what I think about it. And the truth of the matter is that challenge upon us tonight is to be diligent that while we are looking to the stars that we don't fall in a pit. What are you saying, Brother Howington? I'm saying that we won't ever be perfection, the perfection of Christ in our humanity. But we should always be submitted to the perfecting process. And that at the same time, to not let the knowledge that we are not perfect be a caveat or an excuse in us that we should keep from pursuing the ideals of the word in every area of our life. Just because I'm not perfect does not mean that I I take my eyes off of what is ideally perfect and that is still my goal. And no, I'm never going to get my feet out of this earth until the rapture. Even if I go to the grave, there's going to be a part of me that's attached to this earth earth until the trumpet sounds so I want to let you know something tonight I might go to the grave but I'm going to go to the grave expecting the ideal of the rapture to pull me out when the trumpets oh you're not hearing me to pull me out when the trumpet sounds (laughs) 
And I am humanity infused with an element and a quantity and a quality of deity that I don't always even fully apprehend it. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing, looking towards those things which are ahead, I press toward the mark of the high calling of God. I want to be apprehended by that that got a hold of me. I want to get a hold of it. It got me in 1979 and I've been passionately trying to get a hold of it and hold on to it until I can get out of this thing. Somebody help me. I'm talking about the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Some of you vital assets ought to be shouting a little bit right now. Some of you precious resources of heaven ought to be giving God praise right about now. Woo! Paul said, pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. And just because we don't pray constantly doesn't mean that we should not have some time set aside to pray. Paul said, study to show yourself approved. And just because we might not be a master scholar does not mean that we should forsake the reading and the study of the word. Hebrews 10, 25 says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. The idea would be that we should never miss church. That would be the ideal. Somebody said the ideal would be that I never miss. But when I do miss, I must understand that it's not a lifestyle that I'm supposed to adopt. If I miss for something, if I've got some reason that I have to be gone from the house of God, the chance, first chance I get back, I want to get back there and be there. I don't want to miss anything that God might do. I don't care if it's midweek, revival. I don't care if it's vacation Bible school I don't care if it's a prayer meeting I want to be at God's house just because perfect attendance is not always possible it is no reason to adopt a philosophy that grants us permission to just arbitrarily pick and choose when we are going to show up now he's the pastor now and he can tell me I ought not say that and I won't no more, but he can't tell me tonight because I done said it. Nobody's got the right to arbitrarily choose. If, you, if you're not traveling, not sick, not setting aside some time with your family, vacation time, whatever it might be, uh, uh, be at the house of God. The ideals, not ideas, but the ideals of the kingdom of God are delivered to us by the word. The bedrock parameters of what is right and what is not right and accept, or what is acceptable and what is not acceptable are established in the pages of this book. And the philosophy that the book is always right and always righteous is the life view that will keep you on track to be obedient children of God and you'll be saved in the end. The word says we walk by faith and not by sight. But that does not insinuate that we walk dumbly and blindly. 
It just means that when it says we walk by faith and not by sight, that we don't know what process or what plan God is always going to use, but we do know He's going to do what He said He was going to do. He is going to show up. He is going to speak. He is going to work. He is going to accomplish His will. And just because I don't see it doesn't mean He's not going to do it. Amen. So therefore, I walk by faith and not by sight. Just because I don't know the plan He intends to use does not mean that I have any lack of confidence in His ability to do it. Am I doing anything? Am I making sense? The scripture means that I don't always know his processes. But I can always be assured that he will accomplish his plan. I can always by faith know that God is going to have a plan. And when he operates it and when he executes that plan, it will be right. How do I know? Preacher, how can you know that? You know the one lament that I get more than any in this, and it's been that way for years now, from, from, from the unsaved and the saved alike, alike, when they come to me and they want to talk about something, you know the one lament that I get more than any? Well, there's just so much that I don't understand. Can I tell you something? Can I give you, can I give you a, a, a help you out tonight? God did not intend for you to be in the dark about his work. I know because I've made it my business to find out what this said. Not one promise, not one provision, not one precept that he has ever set forth in his word has failed. Quite frankly, I'm amazed at how so so many can in our culture can just summarily Write us off as a bunch of toothless idiots. I've had people actually call us that in this community, by the way. That's one of my favorite little uh, 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 love phrases there. I'm going to go down there. I ain't going down there and associate with that bunch of toothless idiots. Well, we all got denture plans now, friends. I am so amazed at people that have problems believing that the word is true, but they never read a word of it. Never read a word of it. If I was to deny science, And they said, have you ever studied it? And I said, no, I've never studied it, and I'm not going to. I just don't believe it. You know what they'd tell me? Well, that's stupid. Well, duh. If you hadn't read it, how can you say it's wrong? The biggest lament that I get, and I'm not saying this to be critical. I'm just just an observation, is, well, I just don't understand. Well, sometimes that's a legitimate lament and sometimes it's a caveat for not wanting to obey. Because if you claim, if you can, if you can uh, somehow or another attach legitimacy to the idea that I just don't understand. If you don't understand, you need a preacher. If you don't understand, you need a pastor 
and a teacher and you need a Bible study. My wife was reading to me the other day. Brother Greg, she was reading me a passage of Scripture and she read along there a few minutes. I said, hey, I said, that's not King James. She said, no, she said, it's not. I said, uh, she said, but it's real close. It was the, it was the Darby uh, 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 translation. I said, well, all I know is that wasn't King James. Because I don't know Darby, but I do know King James. I had one old-timer old say one time, he said he, he read nothing but the King James Version. He said, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Unfortunately, the Apostle Paul lived in the first century and King James Version was written in 1611. Amen. But his his perspective was right. I'm going to stay with something that that I'm convinced of. Can I tell you, heaven and earth can move, but I can't move off of this. I'm I'm convinced of this. Sister Mary, I'm convinced of this. You know why? Because I, the things that it said would happen if I would repent and give God my life happened. Amen. Oh, you're not hearing me. The experience that I have is the thing that convinced me. It's not blind faith. It's the faith which was once delivered to the saints of God and it still works today just like it did back then. The reason I'm so sure about this New Testament book of Acts experience is because I not only know it with my intellect, I received it when I got down on my knees at an altar of prayer in December of 1979. And that experience flooded through my soul and through my spirit. Amen. And can I help you out now? I could not believe Acts 2.38 if I was not going to believe Acts 2.39. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for, amen, for the promise. Oh my God. Is unto you and unto your children and all that are far off. I can't believe that I got it and not believe that everybody's supposed to get it. Oh, you're, you're one of them. I had a fellow tell me one time that I want him to God out of Trinitarianism. He said the group he used to be with called us oneless people. He, they meant oneness people, but they said oneless people. I said, no, we're not oneless. We're two less than y'all are. I'm one of them two less preachers. Everybody thinks there's three. Well, I believe there's two less than that. Anybody hear one God tonight? Anybody hear Jesus' name tonight? Boy, I'm feeling good. This book is not some hodgepodge of disjointed thoughts cobbled together in some forced fashion so as to give a manipulative set of ideas to humanity that come out of the mind of man. Praise God. People tell me, I've been teaching it for years in Bible study, they say Jesus lived his life intentionally so as to fulfill 
the prophecies about him so that he would look like Messiah. Well, now let me tell you what. The Bible prophesied that he'd be born of a virgin. He had no control over that, JP. It said he'd be born in Bethlehem, and he had no control over that. There's over 300 specific scriptures in the Old Testament about the, uh, about the, uh, the, the validity of Jesus Christ's claim to be Messiah. The odds of that are so astronomical that it's, uh, it's beyond an ability to, absolutely beyond the ability to even communicate it to you. They are so astronomical that I probably couldn't, uh, uh, we, we'd probably have to go to uh, some uh, university and find some math scholar to even read the number. Amen. This is not some ideas out of the mind of man so that certain groups of people could manipulate humanity. Have I been preaching 20 minutes yet? I got two minutes. Oh, no. We're going to have to, we're going to have to stop that thing. Can I help you out here? There is not enough prayers that the pastor can pray that will make you saved. He can pray for God to operate and work and exert his, 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 his influence upon your life. But to believe that the pastor can pray and that you're going to be saved because the pastor prayed, that's Catholicism, folks. Boy, I got some things from the Holy Ghost this week. I'm telling you, yeah, I'm going to walk off from Frogmore one of these times. Mama ain't coming home. I'm, I'm going to be like Enoch. I'm just going to get translated. Huh? T text you before I leave. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm about to go interplanetary here, Pastor, I'm telling you. This is not some hodgepodge of crazy ideas. This book is rather a beautiful mural painting. A great tapestry that the fabric is woven and the threads of every generation come together and you don't really get it all until you get far enough out there to see the big picture. That's the reason you can't get too, be, uh, get too bent out of shape about what's going on in your life in the temporary moment of your test or your trial. Because it'll keep you from seeing the tapestry of the big picture of what God is trying to deliver. Oh, the faith which he's trying to deliver to his people. And every portion of it from the end to the beginning and from the beginning to the end is adding a portion to make this beautiful picture one complete whole thing from Genesis to Revelation. One thing. Brother Matt, it's one thing. If I hadn't taught Brother Matt anything in all these years, I taught him that. It's one thing. It's not a bunch of things. It's all one thing. There's, all, there, there's one God. There's one faith. There's one baptism. 
There's one Lord. He's the Father of all, above all, through all, and in us all. One. There are three that bear record in heaven. They are the Father and the Word and the Holy Ghost. And all these three agree in one. All these three are one. There are three in the earth that bear record. They are the water and the blood and the Spirit. And they all agree in one. There, oh God, help me Lord. There is not one overt reference to God being more than one in the Scripture. There are some Scriptures that refer to His humanity and some that refer to his deity and the ambiguity of that if you're not studying and, you're not, and you hadn't studied to show yourself approved a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word and understanding which is which you might am, through the ambiguity of the word think that they're referencing more than one but there is not one overt scripture that openly says that God is more than one but there are scriptures all the way from the beginning all the way to the end amen Isaiah 600 years before Jesus Christ was born prophesied that a child would be born and a son would be given and he would be the everlasting father Isaiah 43 said he is alpha he is the first and he is the last and he said beside me there is no God when Jesus stood in the book of Revelation and John looked around and turned around and he saw feet like brass and eyes like fire. The voice that spoke to him said, I am Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am he which was and which is and which is to come. I am the Almighty. One voice, one throne, one sitting on that one throne. Y'all knew I was going to get to one God before I got through, didn't you? Jude was possibly the brother of Jesus Christ. Because James, now you got to understand, that's half brother because Christ, humanity, was formed in the womb of Mary by the Holy Ghost. Which means that he was called the son of God because he could be called nothing else because it was the Holy Ghost that overshadowed Mary and she conceived. He would be biologically a half-brother to James. Jesus Christ would be, biologically speaking. And the Bible says that Jude was James' brother. So that means that possibly Jude was Jesus' half-brother also. And the reason Jude wouldn't claim it was because in the beginning Jude was a disbeliever and he didn't feel worthy to be called the brother of the Lord. So he just said, I'm a servant. Am I all right? And Jude said, beware... When any man comes to you and tries to repudiate or denigrate the integrity of the Word of God. Just a short epistle, just 25 verses, written 2,000 years ago, but so full of salient insight for our world today that it could have been written from the headlines of this morning's news. And furthermore, Jude quoted a, a, a quote by a, a, an Old Testament patriarch by the name of Enoch. There are no books in the Bible titled Enoch. 
The holy canon of scripture contains no book of Enoch. But evidently Jude had access to some ancient writings of one of the patriarchs. One of the first patriarchs because the Bible says he was fifth or seventh from Adam. Which meant that he was part of that first inculcation of, of the, or, or, uh, uh, infestation of humanity into the earth. He was part of those. He was, he was so connected to the first man, Adam, that he could, he could relate. It would have been like his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, but he could still understand who he was. And he quoted Enoch, and he said that Enoch, uh, we don't have the writing to study it, but one of the earliest patriarchs of Judeo-Christian life was quoted as prophesying. He said that in the last days, he said, he said we'll see mockers, and we'll see people that are repudiating and, and, and hating on this message. And he said they are like clouds without water. He said they are spots in your feast of charity. He said they are like trees without fruit. And what fruit they do have is withered up. He said they're twice dead and plucked up by the roots. Now if that doesn't, if that doesn't describe the, the modern day religious culture. My God. The challenge for third, fourth, and fifth generation and some even sixth generation apostolics. See, these little babies sitting over here, uh, these four little babies over here, on, my, my, on, on mama's side over here, they are the sixth generation. But the problem, but, but you got to understand something. The generation ahead of her didn't live it, and, 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 and it skipped the generation. Anytime it skips a generation, well, let, let me back up. I was going to say anytime it skips a generation, you have to start over like first generation Christians. Every generation needs to start over like first generation Christians. Because the challenge with third and fourth and fifth generation Christians is, is really uh, simple. Every generation has to have this in your spirit personally and passionately. And you must possess it yourself. There's no amount of social trends. There's no amount of sentimentality nor family tradition than, uh, that can uh, 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 be a substitute for the authentic Holy Ghost and fire new birth experience. I'm, I'm preaching too long. I, I, I'm losing y'all, I can tell. Anytime a culture decides to set aside the bedrock precepts of God's word in order to appease the gods of social acceptance and the gods of political correctness and material success then that culture sets itself on a collision course with judgment and that's exactly where America is today Nicene Council because Rome's empire was falling apart and Constantine wanted to shore up an, uh, uh, an empire that was falling apart and he had embraced a paganistic form of godliness which had introduced polytheism into the original church's precepts because he was a pagan and he believed in a lot of gods and he introduced that so the things that came out of Nicaea was a political appeasement and an appeasement of false doctrine and from Nicaea until 1,200 years later at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, the church as we know it, the, the, the so-called so -called church in the earth spiraled into darkness and spiritual decay. 
But friends, I want to tell you something. Even though it fell apart. And see, the, here's, here's how the devil played it in the dark ages. Nobody but the papal hierarchy could even have a Bible. They kept, they kept people ignorant and in poverty and in spiritual darkness. While the people in the hierarchy of papal, uh, of the papal uh, 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 hierarchy of church leaders literally were carried around on gilded thrones and lived in opulence and, and vast, beautiful, luxurious ways. And people were in darkness and poverty. You see, in the dark ages, the, whole, uh, uh, the enemy tried to prevent people from having access to the word. And in our culture today, he's trying to prevent people from having acceptance to the word. But through it all, you study history. There was always a people. There was always some. They didn't call them Pentecostals. They didn't call them apostolics. They called them all different sorts of names, but they were monotheistic, one God people who believed in the gifts of the Spirit and the supernatural and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. They spoke with tongues. Every culture, every, every age had somebody that held on to the faith once delivered. Anytime that we see that, we can be assured that judgment is on the way. But I don't want you to be dismayed or afraid of what we see unfolding around us. For our destiny and our destination is not determined by any of this. But rather, our destiny and our destination is, is forever settled by the word of God. Now, I, I've preached too long, and if y'all ready for me to quit, i got about ten more minutes, and, and, and I, really, I really need to tell you this, but if you want me to quit, uh, let's take a vote. Hey, everybody wants me to quit. Okay, that's good. I didn't think y'all wanted me to quit. Amen. My maternal grandfather was born in September of 1892. For perspective, when my grandfather was born in 1892, the elders of his day were the survivors of the Civil War. When Pentecost came to Louisiana, it burst upon the scenes in Topeka, Kansas at the turn of the century, of the, uh, at the very onset of the 20th century. By the time the mighty God in Christ, one God message in Jesus' name, baptism, reached Louisiana, it was approximately 1914, 1915. People say, well, how in the world can you believe that ain't been around but 100 years? No, it's been around 2,000 years. It was just not accepted until about 100 years ago. William J. Seymour from Centerville, Louisiana. African American with just one eye. Didn't even have the Holy Ghost, but he believed it was real and was preaching you could have it. And in 1915, when Pentecost came through Louisiana and Mississippi, there was a, there was a, a, a man by the name of Charlie Ephraim Ezel that lived over at Roxy. And he was about 23 years old. He might have been in Akron, Ohio by then. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what year they migrated. They migrated to Akron, Ohio uh, uh, by the year 1920 because my mother was born in Akron, Ohio. You say, why are you telling us all that? Because I'm trying to give you some perspective about something. Neither my parents nor my grandparents were partakers of this. There was a generation... Uh, 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 from that era that did do it though. And that generation produced men like Oscar Dias. 
Oscar Dias was an 18 year old boy in 1923 out at Camp 8 out west of Alexandria back in the piney woods they had a revival he got the Holy Ghost their evangelist left and they said Oscar we want you to testify tonight he said I stood up I said what happened he said I preached and he said I hadn't been never stopped since then My parents and my grandparents didn't have it. It goes all the way back to her great-great-grandparents on her side of the family. But her parents skipped the generation. So when me and Mama got the Holy Ghost, it was brand new. The, ch the challenge for some of us here, and I'm not, being, I'm not being denigrating, the challenge for some of us here tonight is third and fourth, fifth generation, and, and sixth generation is, is this. You can absolutely grow up and not know anything else and still not have the experience in your spirit. They don't, some folks have been around it for three, four generations, five generations, mama. They don't know what it is to be 25 years old and have hair down to here, be playing music in a rock and roll band. Smoking dope all day and drinking, uh, drinking rum and uh, uh, opium, LSD, cocaine. Uh, I could just go on and on and on. And then wake up one morning with a revelation in your soul that the mighty God was Jesus. And that because I repented of my sins and got water baptized in His name, He filled me with the Holy Ghost and I got a transformation that took place in my life. I'm going to tell you, amen, everybody needs to act like you got it and you was the first one to ever get it and you ought to be on fire and you ought to be passionate about it. You know what? Those old timers, and I say that with the greatest respect, they faced repudiation and they faced resentment, they faced reviling, they faced rotten eggs and rotten tomatoes. But they stayed the course. They did so because they knew what they had, had been made to be partakers of was more valuable than all else life could offer. If you'll just stand with me, I'll hurry and get through. It was their commitment that assured that the message would be here for us. We have a great cloud of witnesses going all the way back to the prophets of old who knew by the Holy Ghost that there would be a day that would come just like this day we're living in. What a joyful, exciting thing it is to know that we too are part of this great timeless pilgrimage and that we've been given the privilege and the honor as part of the great bride of Christ to also earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints of God.